Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here today uh, with Kate Spear. Uh, Kate, uh, uh, well, Kate's story is a powerful story, and I want to um, just uh, alert you ahead of time that uh, some of what uh, Kate and I are going to talk about um, could we, could be and probably will be rather uncomfortable for a, for a, for a bunch of people because uh, Kate uh, openly discusses something many of us uh, uh, probably don't like to talk about very much, which is which is mental illness and uh, and her journey through a uh, overwhelming uh, situation for over well for much more than a decade. She's she's uh, still a young woman, but she's been through so so much. And you know, many you think about you know, do we many people don't really like to share our our secrets. <laughs> uh, don't always want to share with people what the bad things are that have happened to us. Uh, they're uncomfortable. We we've dealt with them and. Sometimes we don't even want to face up to it, but you know, Kate is just such a remarkable person because she um, she doesn't just share uh, or want to share her her story, but she's sharing it in a very purposeful way because she knows, and I know, and I think everyone listening uh, knows as well that there are a lot of people afflicted with various uh, mental illnesses and 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 um, and emotional uh, challenges. Uh, we're human beings, and this is this is this happens. And for some people, unfortunately, it could be it could be very severe, which is the which is the story with Kate. And and you know, in our conversation, she she talks about it. She talks openly about what it was like to be uh, to be diagnosed as as bipolar and to deal with that uh, for a long, long time. And the uh, unbelievable courage uh, that uh, she's shown, and uh, uh, unbelievable confidence at the end of the day to somehow make it through that and uh, and now uh, be uh, not just active and energetic and contributing to society but to be to be a leader in in helping other people think about uh, mental uh, mental illness and and, and Kate's particular um, place in uh, in her career and her life now is uh, in the world of uh, of dogs she's the CEO of the doggist uh, which many people will know as a um, one of the uh, most well-known um, Instagram and social media sites, uh, where there there are these fascinating, cute, adorable photos of dogs with captions, and um, there there are millions of people that are that are following and uh, that are following the the doggies. and um, and for Kate it was particularly important because uh, dogs. Um, um, Played such a huge role in her own recovery, and continue to play such a big role in uh, in her ongoing uh, life and her uh, and her ability to work with and through and power through uh, the, the the afflictions and challenges that she that she's had. So her story is just uh, powerful, interesting, uh, courageous, and one we really wanted to share uh, wanted to share with you. And again, if um, if this is a subject that uh, that you that, that it might be uncomfortable to listen to, or that you uh, you you have some concerns about? Uh, please be be alert that uh, Kate does uh, does speak openly about uh, uh, about a lot of the issues that she's that she's dealt with. Uh, so let's welcome Kate Spear to the Sidcast Studio. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Kate Spear. Hey, Kate. Good morning. How are you today? Great. I'm glad that you're here with us, and you are part of this incredible thing called the doggest. Now, I, I had a dog, um, and I want to get another one. My daughter keeps saying, why don't you stop talking about it and do it? Uh, <laughs> but when you travel a lot, it's a little bit difficult. But uh, And that dog became part of the family, um, as you well know how that works. Uh, but first of all, what what is the doggest? Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll kind of dig into 
you know, what, what it's all about and you roll there. Absolutely. Well, I first have to say thanks for having me on. Of course. (laughs) It's a joy to be here. Um, And I agree, dogs are family. Um, But separate from that, the doggist um, actually was the brainchild of my incredible business partner's um, own making. Um, He actually took the hardship of getting laid off from a marketing firm um, and turned it into the most amazing photojournalism project. And that's really how it started. It started as a passion um, for dogs and their stories. Um, and it really started out of kind of a hardship in, in search of joy, in search of adding this moment of beauty and levity that we could all relate to, that we could all find solace in, um, throughout the day. And that, and that really just, it, it launched um, about six years ago now. Six years. And who, who's, the, who's the person that yes, started? Exactly. So it's Elias Weiss Friedman. Okay. He started. He basically had a camera. He has incredible artistic talent just from the get-go. He's mm. been photographing dogs for a long time. But he hadn't brought it to kind of the forefront of social media or any kind of organized collection. And he did so on Instagram. And he called it The Doggist. Um, which, <laughs> which is, is a really good name, isn't it? It's is a great name. Yeah, it's an absolutely great name. Um, but it's so funny to think what it's become. So really, it started small. It started with just him every day going outside with yeah. discipline and photographing dogs, um, asking owners questions, you know, what does your dog do? Oh, he chases squirrels. Um, <laughs> and he would keep those notes to himself, but he would publish the photos. And then later on, he realized if he added that layer of story mm-hmm. that, oh, he chases squirrels. Oh, you know, my dog ate six socks last week and we went to the vet. And I've now realized that I should, instead of having a vacation fund, having a sock retrieval fund, he realized that adding those stories, those Mm. glimmers of levity and personality, um, gave even more to it. Um, And when he added the captions, these little micro stories, um, BuzzFeed picked it up and um, really a a number of press locations actually picked it up. Who who writes the the caption? Does he do that or is it a team or you do that? He he actually does that. So he'll, um, again, it, it evolved to have a team, but uh, he basically started with literally his smartphone and his camera, and he would yeah, interview yeah. Um, the dog owner on site and then create the caption from kind of the breadth of narrative and all that comes out on Got a New it. York so city you, what you make me, uh, <laughs> what you make me, he's in New York. Yes, he's yes. in New York. Yes. Uh, uh, although I'm sure people send stuff in from maybe all over the world at this stage, uh, uh, photos and things like that. He, Yeah, so actually that's a kind of common misconception is that actually um, that people send us the photos. He has photographed every single dog. So he has photographed all 30,000, I think we're almost up to 40,000 dogs that have ever appeared on the Doggist. Are you going to tell me that no dog appeared more than once? That Some would be dogs, a tough thing to no, keep track no, no. of. Some dogs have absolutely appeared. So my dog has appeared more than once. I could um, just see the dog also. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Roof. I'm going to be on again and again. <laughs> I mean, it's actually become kind of this incredible um, badge of prestige. It's been interesting. I get emails. I probably get about 50 emails a day now that I'm affiliated wow. saying, can you get my dog on the oh doggest? Yeah. So it's a little. It's, I'll keep that in mind when I do get my next Yes. Dog. <laughs> well, you know, you have an inside. I so I just might I might be able to pull some strings <laughs> so you know what it also makes me think of so everyone people love their children and people love love dogs totally um, and it seems like there's some type of privacy thing you don't want to tell the world about your kids for maybe two reasons one is that there's some crazy people in the world but the other reason is you don't some people have no limits on this but right. <laughs> you just you know it's your own private it's your life Entirely. and and but for dogs that barrier is removed somehow 
And so you get this kind of explosion of, of media and photos. I mean, you think that's kind of, I'm sure you've thought about, you know, children or babies versus dogs. Totally. Entirely. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is, um, there's kind of an unfiltered um, authenticity mm-hmm. that comes through in in the work that we do. It's actually one of the reasons mm-hmm. I love what we do the most, because mm-hmm. I feel like we're constantly in search of meaning and authenticity in this digital age and yeah. filters and presets right. and and everything under the sun to look right and feel right. <laughs> but dogs are just dogs. <laughs> and it's why they bring us such joy. You know, if they're going to sniff someone's butt, they're going to sniff someone's butt. <laughs> and we can talk about it and we can find joy in it. And I think that freedom, that freedom to be themselves, um, really does give us this kind of access Mm -hmm. to something special um, and something truly real, um, which I think we don't often find with kids because when, and I know this for a fact, like when I talk to my sister about her, you know, newborn son, he's perfect in every (laughs) way. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to have a kid because my kid's not going to be perfect. (laughs) But a dog, you know, when a dog chews through drywall, we all laugh and say, me too. My dog did that too. My well, my dog didn't do drywall. My dog did the fence, and then shoot through the fence. Yeah, or something, or whatever Impressive. it is. No, you know what I mean. I'm just saying <laughs> these are the is. stories we get. Yeah. So when lack it's a dog. of perfection is is yeah. a badge of reality and honor for dogs, and for our own children, they are perfect, of course. Yeah. Always. Always. Absolutely. Always. Yeah. That's so interesting. So. Um, have you been surprised at, uh, I mean, you've always been a dog lover. You've had dogs in your, in your life, but have you been surprised at the size of this community and the energy around it? I've been blown away. Really? Truly blown away. Um, I actually started following the doggist when I was quite unwell, um, about six years ago. I actually Mm -hmm. started, was one of his, I mean, he had at that point had been picked up by BuzzFeed. So he had about a million followers. Um, and this was when it was really just Elias before he'd launched a bestselling book, um, doing more on stories and kind of added on a, a team behind him. But I fell in love with his community from the get-go because there was support for everything, mm-hmm. for every facet of being and every little intricacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether a dog did something bad or did something funny or did something truly remarkable, um, whether it's a guide dog or some type of service animal, um, there's just an outpouring of love, and you know it's it's real and it's good, and it mm-hmm. um, and everyone gets it. It's not divided by politics. It's not divided by anything. It's just untouchable. And so I've been truly blown away by the size of yeah. size of the community. Right. Know. Yeah. In some ways, it's not surprising. In other ways, it is because it's so it's so big. Right. Totally. Um, do you yeah. have a sense of how this thing really took off and kind of went viral? I know Buzzfeed picked it up, so that's a big deal. But totally. it was pretty successful already. There were a lot of followers, a lot of Instagram followers, et cetera, early on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there, when we look at social media and we look at the doggist, I think there are a lot of things to think about. Obviously timing is a huge part of it, Mm -hmm. but I think it also goes hand in hand with Elias's talent. And I think he seized an opportunity. Social media was just starting and he gave them what they wanted. Mm. Great dog pictures, always great stories, Always. And he did it daily and with discipline. And I think that's something that he really was ahead of his time in the sense mm-hmm. that he saw this opportunity and said, let me do this and let me do this right. Let me do this consistently. Like Elias for five years got up and he finally learned you need knee pads to get on their level and put on his <laughs> knee pads. I mean, that's amazing. And that's he what would, he did, actually. Yeah, he literally would get up, uh, put on his knee pads. He's pretty serious. Okay. Yeah, and get down on the ground with mm-hmm. these dogs. Um 
And I think, I think really, um, I think that discipline and consistency, it's a lesson for all of us, whether we're in business or in any walk of life. But I think that really was where the success came from. It was that three times a day, your feed was brightened with an amazing dog picture that went hand in hand with a story that warmed your heart. How uh, so? This this is a business. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. How does it get monetized? So for um, for the doggest, about five and a half years ago, Elias was approached by an agent, a really talented woman um, who went to Harvard Law, and um, she basically said, "Hey, there's an amazing opportunity for you to do." social media marketing. She, she approached him. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he, he wasn't necessarily or maybe at all thinking about um, that next step? or he, at, maybe the, he at that time, I think he was thinking mostly about writing a book. So he had already been approached by a literary agent. So that yeah. was the first kind of frame of monetizing. But this woman, that, that, this woman you're talking about wasn't an agent or a she literary was, agent? Or? She, well, she, was, she had a degree, uh, a law degree. Um, and basically was interested in utilizing her law degree to create an agency for dogs. For, for dogs, specifically for dogs. For specifically for dogs. How crazy is that? I know. Yeah, so it's not You go to just... Harvard Law and become an expert on taking care of dogs. I love that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I love it too. Yeah, so she basically realized that advertisements um, were the future of social media, that influencer marketing was going to take off and she was really smart about it so she she thought okay this is an amazing audience mm-hmm. this is a man who puts on his knee pads every day like you can't get more honest than someone who every single day is on the ground yes. with dogs mm-hmm. um, let's figure out a partnership so that we can find brands and tell mm-hmm. stories that speak to products that would do well and serve this community and so really it started with things like Purina um, like him telling the story of dog food. And then it started with other partnerships. I mean, it really kind of went from that to working with like the body shop. So, you know, no testing on animals. So it was, it was a lot of different brands that fit within the scope um, of, you know, obviously the core values of the doggist, which mm-hmm. is honesty and authenticity. How would those brands appear in the daily feed? Absolutely. Great question. So it would be this dynamic where he would go shoot a dog in the setting with the brand and tell the story of the brand and the product through the lens of an owner and the dog. So if we take Purina, let's say it was the dog and you had a dog named Howie and Howie would, you know, get in the Purina kitchen or whatever in the setting that they had chosen and it would be Howie and Howie's owner and Howie would eat Purina dog food and be ridiculously cute in doing so, and Elias would photograph the moment, and then the owner would talk about how the nutrition had helped Howie grow stronger from his ACL surgery or, you know, take more hikes and walks and whatnot. And so it would be through the lens and the kind of framework that the doggist is known for, which is this beautiful photograph Mm -hmm. and a story from the owner. So there's a story... This wasn't right at the beginning of the story, was it? Did he start with the stories in addition to the photo? He first started with the photo. And then he added. And then he realized that his notes about these dogs right. that he was keeping for himself, these little joyful nuggets, yeah. were actually great for mm-hmm. everyone. And so, so, you, so you'd click on something on, uh, under uh, so the Instagram photo, and then there'd be a little caption, and totally. there'd be a link or something to click on, or the story would actually appear there. It'd be that short. It would be that short. So it's actually within the caption itself. 
so Elias did a very kind of thoughtful analysis and understanding that to leave Instagram was actually to kind of leave where this like little microcosm yeah. of joy was. Smart. So he kept the captions intact. So in they're the very, they're very short. Very short. They can be, I mean, they can definitely move towards multiple paragraphs for our longer form projects. When we interview like a veteran and their service animal, those sometimes have three paragraphs worth of text, but it's much mm-hmm. more um, kind of short and pithy right. to the point. When, yeah. when this happened, was there any pushback from people who said, you know, you're going commercial, you're selling out, this was all about the beauty of the dogs, and now you're trying to sell us dog food? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair reaction to have. I would say, again, going back to what we talked about with this amazing community, what really happened was, oh my gosh, we're so proud of you <laughs> for getting this to be a business, mm. for being rewarded for your work. Um, and that, again, is something that I find to this day to be really heartwarming when I do it with my own dog or whatnot. I don't get these messages of hate. I actually get, oh, my gosh, congratulations. We wow. love you and your dog so much. We're so happy you're being rewarded for this content yeah. you give daily for that free. That is so interesting because you, uh, I, maybe the lesson is when you have this kind of deep authenticity and connection to your audience where you are you are genuine and you've been doing it for for nothing for fun totally. uh, for the love of, of the of the work totally. that you you build this these these bonds in a community. I bet there's some interesting lessons in in marketing and more more generally. Uh, but he started um, and the dog has started really uh, let's call it a to call it a nonprofit is to imply that there was even an attempt to make a right, right. It was a hobby. Yeah, it was a it hobby, was a hobby yeah. that got got big. So it was really totally. it was really genuine. Yeah, that's that's great. So what's your role in the company? Absolutely. So I was brought on about a year and a half ago as the CEO. So I actually um, have been brought on to scale the business and to really take the business to what most people will start to think of as a business. I think right now the common question we're faced with is what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. How do you make money off of social media? How mm-hmm. do you, are you just an influencer? Are you, is this, you know, more of a, a hobby or, or something right. like that? And so I've been brought on to really add um, basically longer form narratives. So instead of those short, pithy, beautiful captions, Mm -hmm. the stories behind those. So deeper, longer form narratives that speak to advocacy, education, and kind of heartfelt stories about what dogs can do for us. Um, And then additionally, to add kind of a philanthropic component, one of the things we take pride in is that we're all about teaching kind of how rescues work and how to get pups adopted and such. But we've, we've never been able to add a financial component to that. And so what we're hoping to do (laughs) is um, build out an apparel line that all kind of gives back so that has everything literally in form of a social enterprise, so to speak. So every product that is purchased actually feeds an animal in a shelter. So you're, uh, uh, let's say, quite young, if I may. Yes, absolutely. You're the CEO of this kind of cool company. How'd that happen? Great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very young, yes. (laughs) Um, uh, It happened actually... Up here, where we are right now, up uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, I had given a a talk on um, dogs and how they um, have healing um, powers. I have Mm -hmm. my own service animal who helped save my life, and I'd given a a talk, and Elias had happened to be there. And I had met him, and I had been so anxious and starstruck, (laughs) I'll be honest, I made the worst impression of all time. Um, But... uh, when I and when I spoke in front of the audience, I luckily <laughs> I, I guess strung a few words together well. And so he reached out, um, came up, 
And we spent two days together um, adventuring, taking photographs of my dog Waffle and myself, him learning about my story, and me telling him that he was insane if he didn't take this amazing community of his Mm -hmm. beyond Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, And afterwards he said, write a deck, write a pitch. Um, And I said, okay. And I came down and I wrote the business plan I just told you about. And he said, okay, let's do it. Wow. And that's the story of how I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. And so but you have a marketing or social media and marketing background, right? I do, yep. Um, you were in, the, I think, the coffee business at one point. I was, yeah. Which um, I'm a coffee snob and addict uh, and happy <laughs> happy to uh, announce it. And uh, so um, um, that must have been interesting uh, also. Absolutely. Um, so you had various, and that's not, that's not dogs. I don't know what category. What do we call this category if we were to define what type of business this is? Absolutely. I think I would. Ca- I always call us a digital storytelling business um, at this point in mm. in our um, kind of evolution. I think we'll move on to be a more um, narrative based e commerce space um, where the stories actually feed into the products we create. But I think that that's for down the road. Digital <laughs> storytelling. Is that what you said? Yep. Is, do, you, can, do you know any other types of companies or brands that fall in that category? Totally, yeah. So if you look at, like, the Humans of New York, yes. um, they've built an incredible brand, mm-hmm. um, literally built on stories. They're a digital storytelling business. Yeah. Um, they have a team. Again, it's based with one individual mm. who kind of forefronts the actual storytelling and the photography portion, but there is a team behind him that, that does create all the books and the media associated right. with it. Yeah. You know, in a way, the SITCAST is a storytelling uh, yeah. form as well, right? Absolutely. Podcast, podcast would be another great example. Yeah. I think a lot of, of folks, it's, it's, a, it's a marriage of media with stories, um, but media in a sense of not just reporting. Um, I think it yeah. goes beyond that. What I, what I like about the whole idea is how stories are central to it, because stories are the currency, how people think, exactly. how people behave. I, yes. I give many lectures and speeches all over the world, and it, you have to connect to people on an emotional level. Stories is how you do that. Absolutely. Um, and when stories ha- are are authentic, are genuine, are are personal, people really relate to relate to that. It's um, it's it's really interesting. And you're living it. Yeah, abs- I do. I yeah. do. It's I always I for a really long time I couldn't explain my career trajectory, and now I finally understand it's it was built in storytelling. Um, my every job I've ever had was about telling a story in a different way and about how we connect with others. And I think my hope is to have stories that do good, that provide meaning beyond the great meaning that they give me or my team when we create them. Right. Right. That's great. That's great. We're talking to Kate Spear. Let's take a short break and come right back. We're back with uh, with Kate Spear uh, from the Doggist, talking about all things dog and uh, all things Kate as well. And Kate, you've been very uh, outspoken about your own personal life, your personal journey, and the challenges that you've uh, you, you've had. Um, and and it relates to mental illness, of course. So could you uh, share a little bit about that about that story? Absolutely. I think the the first thing to note um, is I'm unabashed in how I talk about mental illness. And I just, for everyone listening, uh, first, thank you. Uh, But second, please know that what I'm about to share doesn't actually hurt me. Speaking about this stuff actually is setting myself free. So knowing that the words I'm about to share, Mm -hmm. however hard they may be to hear, listen to the, listen through the discomfort for you. Um, Don't turn away for me. Um, Listening is an honor. 
um, in this setting. So without further ado, I'm going to talk about some difficult issues. And we are listening. Yes, I appreciate it. I really do. Um, so I, um, I grew up with a learning disability. Um, and it really, that's um, when the doctors realized I was a different type of kid. Um, I had one of the highest IQs in my class, mm. and I couldn't read. And they couldn't figure it out. They just could not understand what was going on, how a kid so brilliant and well-spoken couldn't read. Um, and this was kind of the overarching theme of um, my childhood, which was just confusion, um, was what is wrong with Kate? <laughs> mm. So at a very young age, I internalized this concept that I was broken, that I was different. I didn't get to go to the special ed classroom because the special ed classroom was full of children with learning disabilities that fell into certain categories. I went to my own classroom. So I went to a small, <laughs> very mm. like, I think it was a closet that was repurposed and I practiced learning to read or I sat in the hallway. With a teacher or a... With a teacher or a special ed, special ed. Special ed person. Um, and so... And this is important to note from the mental illness perspective because they really believe at this point I started to experience symptoms of childhood depression. I was undiagnosed at that time. I was undiagnosed actually until the age of 16. But my entire childhood was reframed because I was such a young kid yeah. in this paradigm of brokenness, in of otherness, of I am different and I don't belong. Um, and I think that really... Um, that that chord kind of ran through my entire life. Um, that said, when I was 16, I just started crying all the time. Mm. And the thought was all of these experiences, these hours in tutoring, these hours separated from my peers had kind of caught up to me. Um, and at that point, I was diagnosed with both ADHD and depression. And interestingly, I remember hearing that at 16 and I was actually sitting on the stairs and my mom, you know, had just talked to the doctors. She turns to me and she tells me this. And I remember feeling an incredible amount of relief. Mm. Because there was a word you, for you, it. You knew what it was now. Yeah. You put a label on this There was thing. a word. Yeah. It wasn't mm. it wasn't just an other. It wasn't this unambiguous thing. It was a word. Um and as a as a woman who now adore stories, and as a young girl who oh, a young girl who adored stories, I finally had a way to tell the story, and I realized mm. then that okay, I have a word for this. I have a way to speak mm. and advocate and explain what I'm going through. I'm not just the girl who cries in the hallway. I'm a girl with depression. So I'm a persistent kind of stubborn <laughs> <laughs> woman. I'll be honest. Um, so I didn't want it to stop me. Um, so finally, once I had that word, once I had a way to tell the story, I would just march into classrooms mm. weeping. <laughs> I used to just cry probably anywhere from, you know, seven, seven to nine hours a day. Oh I just my. was I was in this state of just complete um, excess um, in terms of my emotions. And I would say, here's the deal. My name is Kate. I have depression. <laughs> I am not ashamed to say you, it. You said this in the classroom. I said this at 16. To all the kids? To, no, to, to well, no, to the teachers when I, on the first day of class, first I would walk in. So my junior year, I finally had a word for it. So I walked in. Got it. was honors chemistry, and Mr. Levine was sitting there at the chalkboard, and everyone's, you know, talking about their summer break, and I'm crying. Classic, at 8 a.m. in the morning. And I walk in, and I say, Mr. Levine, I have depression. And there are two options. You can send me to the guidance counselor. She's already my best friend. 
and I'll spend the hour with my best friend, or you can let me cry in the back of your classroom and learn. I would like to learn, but it's your choice. And I just, I remember Mr. Levine, he went white in the face, and he kind of stumbled back into the blackboard, and he said, well, of course you can learn. Yeah. Well, of course you can learn. Um, and I, I'm so proud of myself now, mm. looking back. So mature, what you just described. Um, yeah. You know, you know, for any teenager, for yeah. any kid. Um, I didn't realize that it was that special. I now yeah. realize that what I did that year and every year since, all mm. the way through Middlebury College and graduating, um, was remarkable. I don't think I thought of it as remarkable. I thought of it, this is the only way I will survive. This mm. is the way I will grow. This is the way I will learn. This is the way I will do good with my, my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so it started at 16. Um, I then was put on various antidepressants and medications. And by the time I was 18, the diagnosis had actually transitioned to a mood disorder, not otherwise specified. And for clarification here, this is when an individual who struggles with illness um, experiences mood lability, but not mood lability in such a pronounced way. So highs like joy and euphoria and lows like a depression, but experiencing that, but not on a degree that classifies as bipolar disorder. So it's not severe enough to warrant the classification of bipolar disorder. Um, At this point, I was freshman at Middlebury. I walked in and I was unapologetic and unabashed <laughs> as I am today. And I just told people, I was like, hi, my name is Kate. I've got bipolar disorder. What's up? Um, or I've got a mood disorder. What's mm-hmm. up? And I was just totally transparent. Um, I was transparent with my professors. I was transparent with my friends. And what I learned is, is a lesson that I think most adults learn by the time they're 30 or 35, which is if you are who you are, outwardly, Mm -hmm. then you can be loved for who you are always. But until you show yourself to the world, Mm -hmm. you're just loved for your presentation of self, not your real self. And the greatest joy is finding community that loves your real self. And so I, (laughs) 18 and 19, had already figured this out. And so Mm -hmm. if you weren't going to like me with my mental illness, well, then you weren't going to like me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually... I think the thing that's most remarkable about it all is people love me back. They all had a story. Mm -hmm. They all, instead of feeling ostracized or different, felt welcomed. They felt welcomed. Yeah. Your your honesty, do you think, helped them kind of be honest themselves? Because everyone has something. Absolutely. Everyone has, has something. Yeah. There's no perfection out there in any way, and that doesn't even mean anything. Uh, and maybe because you, I mean, I, I want to know your experience with yeah, this, totally. certainly in college, but you're, you're, you're out there, and I'm Kate, and, you know, I have this mood disorder, and that's who I am. Totally. Um, and there's a lot of things that people are going through at every age, especially when you're younger. Absolutely. And here's this honest girl, and she's just smiling at me in her way, and yeah. It was, yeah, it was like an invitation. Um, it was like an invitation, yeah. Um, and I think um, it was a total invitation. And I realized I was outspoken in public settings, and they would come to me in my bedroom and tell me their stories. And that was when I really knew. And I think, you know, growing up, I'd known I, li- I liked stories, and I, I loved getting lost in a book or a movie or whatnot. But that was when I knew stories were my 
stories were my people. <laughs> stories were my people. Um, and people let me in. Um, by the end of that first semester, I had accrued an incredible support network of cheerleaders and people who just really had my back from all walks over the campus, both in terms of deans and professors, but also from kind of just upperclassmen and peers alike. Um, and by the end of that semester, I actually experienced a full-blown hypomanic episode. So I stayed up for an entire week. I ran 35 miles without training, and I wrote a masterful um, essay that my professor said he'd never seen anything like, um, which is considered to be hypographia, a symptom of bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, and I did this all in a week without sleeping. And my doctor, um, the day after I graduated, or I finished that semester, said, well, Kate, you have bipolar disorder, mm. um, because I finally had experienced a symptom so severe. Um, what we now know, and this is the very interesting thing, so if we step back from kind of this story, is that all of those symptoms, the hypomania, the hypographia, the non-sleeping, was actually a manifestation of the antidepressant I was taking. I don't have bipolar disorder. But that time period, due to the medications I was on and the symptoms it created, cultivated the presentation of bipolar disorder. And I spent the next nine years, nine and a half years, struggling with this, what we now know to be a misdiagnosis. When did you discover this misdiagnosis and, I, and, the, and the impact of these meds on you? Absolutely. When I was, we discovered it at 27. Um, so this is going towards that nine years that you're talking about. Yeah. So I was diagnosed at, um, at 18, and at 27 and a half, I got a new doctor who said, you're just anxious and depressed, and you're on a boatload of meds. Um, but that, that, um, that understanding took a very long time to, yeah. to arrive at, and that, that is what sometimes people refer to it as the darker decade. I just call it the decade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We round up. I know nine and a half years. It's, I know it's, I'm rounding up. Sorry, science nerds. Um, you know, data is important. Um, but um, yeah. So um, basically, the next I want to say five years were spent, and and it's important to understand at this point the bipolar di diagnosis when it was given to me was largely given to me not only because of that presentation of hypomania, but also because my grandmother has bipolar disorder. Um, she's subsequently passed away, but she had bipolar disorder and a genetic linkage is, is, mm -hmm. is noted. Um, and I had very similar behaviors to her. So we spent really, um, and I use we because it was a team effort. Mm -hmm. I think people don't realize that just like cancer patients, mental illness patients have an entire, you know, community behind them. Um, and my parents and care team spent the next Five years trying different medications. Um, tried lithium. Um, tried a whole slew of meds that I don't really need to get into. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. So my my dog just is letting me know I'm anxious. Thank you, Wafi. <laughs> <laughs> really, am I anxious talking about this? <laughs> Shocking. Um, yeah. So we've talked about it a lot. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't change. And your sharing is so. I mean, it's honest and it's, it's brave and it's important because you. you know there are people that are listening that they may not have 
dealt with what you dealt with, but everyone deals with something. And totally. To hear it um, and to people recognize that they're not alone is very, very important. Yeah. I mean, one in five people live with a mental illness. One in five. You mm. know some. Everyone knows someone. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think that's why I'm so unapologetic in how mm-hmm. I talk about it, is I just, I know there's a one in five, and I speak just so those, that one, you know, somewhere can find a, a little so bit So were you able to stay in school at Middlebury after this, this one week? Yeah. Uh, um, that just kind of changed change the diagnosis? Absolutely. Um, I was. Um, going back to kind of the stubborn ethos of my soul, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you consider what I did in high school to be um, intense. What I ended up doing at Middlebury was equally intense. I um, basically created for myself a supported education plan. Um, I built out a, a system of transparency and protocols that involved my professors and my friends and my parents um, to be able to stay in school. So I went back to school my sophomore year, and um, I kicked it off with a full course load. Um, And that is where I think the transparency really saved my life um, and these protocols, where I would walk into the room and say, hey, I would love to sit down with you. I finally learned that telling the professor the first morning in class wasn't smart. Probably not in front of, you know, 40 kids while they're about to give their first lecture. Not intelligent. So I finally learned that one of the most important things is to create a safe space and a time that works for them. Mm -hmm. It's mutually beneficial where we can sit down. So I said, hey, I'd love to talk to you about a health concern at some point in this first week of class. Mm -hmm. Can we set up an appointment at your convenience? I want to talk through this. And I would walk in and I would say, I have bipolar disorder. I'm on these medications. These are the current concerns. I work with the ADA, um, the American Disabilities Act office, for these. I have a tutor for this. Um, How can I help make this as easy as possible for you so that I can still get an education? Um, And I remember professors bursting into tears. Oh, my God, you know, just, Mm. whoa, Mm. you want... Of course I'm going to help you. Of course. Um, But I think I felt like it was a burden, and I always thought it was a burden Mm -hmm. for them. And so my... I, I reread a lot of the emails now, um, and basically I now realize, like, I had internalized that so significantly that um, I I made it maybe even easier for them yeah. than they were even willing. They would have done far, far more than right. I gave them the credit for. But anyways, um, that basically went through the next um, semesters um, until mm-hmm. um, I was hospitalized for the first time. Um, How old were you then? I was 21, mm-hmm. my first psychiatric hospitalization. I had I had been so physically sick from the meds, um, and I was so unwell. Um, I was seeing double. I was... Waffle is on a rampage right now. Yeah, so waffle waffle has, has decided to sniff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pet the dog while, while You're very you... important. <laughs> Are you checking in on us? Yeah, it's a long story. You're right. Mom should make it shorter. <laughs> Basically, the meds were, were brutal. The meds were brutal. Um, a lot of people don't recognize that psychiatric medication is um, full of some of the most serious side effects. So I was living with chronic migraines, seeing double, um, 
vomiting, diarrhea, and all of this while I was going to school. I was wearing adult diapers to give you an extent of how severe these side effects were. Um, and in that vein, um, I just had had it. I, I had also had it, I think really the source of the suicidality that um, landed me in the psych ward for the first time was the pain on people's faces. Mm. It wasn't just that I was sick. It wasn't just that I was so unwell and so incapable of modulating my mood and my affect and my brain really in any way. Um, it was the look on my best friend's faces. Uh. It was my parents bursting into tears when they thought I went upstairs. Um, it was my psychiatrist shaking his head when he thought I was looking down. It was those moments that just made me feel like I was breaking their hearts and mm. breaking their worlds. Um, and in that suicide note that I wrote, um, I didn't actually follow through with it, but in the suicide note, I was like, I'm, I'm giving you the gift. And this is the important thing to note about suicide is it, it didn't feel like a choice. It felt like I was saving my people like this was the only solution and my mind was lying to me saying this is the only way to make the people you love feel happy again hmm. and that was literally what my brain kept telling me day in day out and so I wrote this note that said this is my gift to you you will live a life of beautiful joy and happy as soon as I am gone and you won't understand it at first but later when the joy returns you will know I gave you back your lives um, and I somehow didn't jump off the bridge because of um, some cars formation. I still don't mm. totally get it. Um, it's a blur, I'll be honest. Um, and then I told my therapist. I walked in and I said, here's my note. Um, I need help. My brain is lying to me. And I, I, it is lying to me all day, every day. And I, I can't trust it anymore. And, and you, you know what you wrote in that note was, um, was wrong. Yeah, after I was outside after. that state. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, this is where I think the doctors now recognize I was in states of dissociation, where I really was detached from my body. Mm -hmm. um, and I went in. I had shock therapy. Um, came out three weeks later, not being suicidal, not remembering the first two years of college either. <laughs> Super rough. Um, Did that come back? It's slowly coming back. Mm -hmm. It still comes back. It comes back in night terrors a lot, um, mm -hmm. still to this day. Um, but um, mostly what it did give me, the beauty of that shock therapy, which is weird to say on a podcast about business, it, um, yeah. is it, it gave me my camera. Um, and it's where I reconnected with stories. Because every day my memory reset. And so every day I would, I not only had lost this large long-term chunk, but I'd also lost my short-term mm -hmm. ability for a long while. So every day I would go outside with my parents' Nikon D40, mm -hmm. it's like old basic camera, and I would shoot. I would shoot photos of people, and I would write down notes. And every night I would upload my memory card, and I would put it in a drive, mm -hmm. and then I would write their stories. And then in the morning I'd wake up, and I would barely remember Middlebury College and where I was, and I had a note that said, read your computer next to my bed. So I'd wake up and I'd boot up my computer, and it would say, RD is your best friend, and then it would tell me the stories of RD, and then it would be, Cassidy is an ally, and she will help you go to the dining hall, and it would tell me the stories of Cassidy, and I did that 
for two years. Mm. Um, I did that for two years. And that's where I fell back in love with stories. I regained my life. Um, but it's also when they added a lot more um, medication because I was so unwell at that point. And um, at this point, they thought the medication was solving the problem of psychotic episodes. Um, but it turned out the medication, now we know the, the medication actually created the psychosis, um, created hallucinations. Um, but at 21, I started hallucinating. Um, so all of the new meds created mm. these visions. Um, yeah. And I spent the next five years hallucinating as a result of, now we know the drugs, but at the time we thought it was um, because of my bipolar disorder. You didn't, you didn't know. It was a massive misdiagnosis. Massive, yeah, massive. Yeah. Um, let's just take a real quick uh, break. And uh, totally. I, I think what, uh, what I really want to know is how you got to the other side. Um, Thank you. Yes, and, uh, uh, I think everyone wants to know that because it's uh, it's heavy. It, it's a it, it is definitely a happy and ongoing ending. Uh, yes, but you, you got your beautiful dog uh, Waffle here, and I and you said earlier, you know, this dog saved your life, and I think uh, I think we want to hear about that as well. We'll be right back with Kate Spear. Welcome back to the Sidcast, Kate. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for sitting through that. I know that was a lot. <laughs> you have been so uh, so honest, and, and and I know people are listening and 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 learning and feeling from from that. Uh, tell tell us how you got to the the other side. Um, absolutely. Wh- wh- how did this happen? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, that kind of reality of going to the hospital, going back, telling my professors, lasted through the end of college. Um, and then I went and moved home. Um, and I moved home and I actually lived, um, just across the river in Norwich, Vermont. Um, I lived in my great aunt's house and I was put on psychiatric disability, but the one light in my day was the fact that my parents were having me dog sit their Bernie Stoughton dog, Sophie. Um, and during this time, my life was one of isolation aside from Sophie. And (laughs) Sophie was the goofiest burner there ever could have been. Bernie's Mountain Dogs are known to be kind of derpy um, or dorky. Dorky Dorky is the word probably most people are familiar (laughs) with. This very, very silly, um, loving, massive, teddy bear-esque dog. Um, And Sophie (laughs) would love with this ferocity that didn't make sense. And during that time, I just learned the power of having something outside yourself. And so it was a really dark time. I, um, by the end, was hospitalized 21 times um, for hallucinations and suicidality and really now they realize dissociative episodes where I lost my ability to control my body. Um, but the only thing that provided meaning and structure mm. um, to my day was Sophie. I would walk her in the morning and I would walk her at night. And I I clearly had an anxiety disorder at that point. I was very fearful of public settings and social settings. But Sophie was something I cared so much about mm. that I took care of her. And I learned I could. Um, And she was the first example of self-efficacy, which I think is fundamental in everything we do as humans, whether you're just recovering from mental illness or (laughs) you're – and now Waffle is lying upside down. We're laughing and all looking at her as she takes a nap. (laughs) She knows I'm relaxed, so she's just chilling. (laughs) She's my service dog. Um, So, yeah, so it was the first time I really felt 
like I had meaning. It was that I would walk her and then she'd wag her tail and I'd say, oh, this is good. And then I'd walk her again and she'd wag her tail again. Okay, because you were, you were taking care of someone else. Somebody was, needed you. And it was outside me. Yeah. Exactly. So it was outside me. Um, so one of the great challenges of mental illness is that inside the mind, everything is distorted by the lens of illness. Um, so in my case, I was depressed, unwell, and often hallucinating. So everything just felt completely chaotic. And and honestly, there was nothing I felt like I could trust. Um, if I felt good, I, didn't, I couldn't trust it. If I felt bad, I couldn't trust it. If I saw something, I couldn't trust it. But with Sophie, hmm. she was this physical, live being of glee. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when she wagged her tail, I knew there was no lie my mind was telling me, that there was nothing but truth mm-hmm. in her being. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really was the start of me learning um, how to grow through this stuff. Um, in the end, um, what really changed kind of my my whole life was not only Sophie, but also being put finally in a work setting. Um, I went to this talk by this um, professor at Dartmouth, Bob Drake, um, and he talked about this program called Supported Employment. And he told these stories about people who used their mental illnesses um, to find jobs that served them. And so this is going to be a little bit graphic, so bear with me. Um, And if you have a history of self-harm, definitely just like scoot through the next 30 seconds. But for an individual, this woman who used to self-harm, predominantly, they gave her a job in a laboratory where she dissected rats. Um, And she went from being agoraphobic, not leaving her house, not having a job, being on disability, to having a full-time technician job Hmm. because she took her self-harming behaviors and turned it into a career of learning science experiments. And that was what this program was about. Hmm. It was about learning how to take the problem and make it into something. How do we reframe this mm. to give you a job um, that accommodates, that makes space for your mental illness? Yeah. So what did that lead you to? It led me to actually apply for a job there. Uh-huh. Um, being so fascinated by the stories they told, um, the stories of you know a man hallucinating who worked with, who only heard auditory hallucinations. So he would listen with speakers and use a weed whacker all day. Like all of these stories that that blew my mind, captivated me. And I thought, oh my gosh, the world needs these stories. The world needs these stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I need these stories for me just to feel like I have people, brethren, but the world needs these stories so that more people can know there's a gift in this darkness. Mm -hmm. We can turn this darkness into meaning um, if we're just given a chance to. So yeah, from mm. <laughs> and that was yeah. that was that was kind of a, a, a giant step. It was a massive step. So that was five. That was now six years ago. So six years ago, and I got a part time job, and I worked. I applied, and I worked two hours a day, four days a week. <laughs> <laughs> and I laugh now. And I, for people who are on psychiatric disability, I commend you because illness is so real and it's so hard. And I now laugh at that only out of almost discomfort because it was really at, at the at the edge of my capacity. I would go in, I would research these stories, I would research, I actually was looking at how to create a digital space for these stories to live. Yeah. So I researched how interfaces teach us things and how interfaces disseminate stories in different ways. So whether it's video or an app or um, a website of some sort, um, 
how do those interfaces teach us stories? So the, again, with the kind of the digital storytelling, kind of the yeah. central theme, it was part of you from a very young age and came out in all these different ways. Yeah. So during this time, you still were on, on the meds that were causing all these problems? Still on the so meds. So how did that end? How did that kind of discovery happen? Totally. So at this, at this organization called the Psychiatric Research Center at Dartmouth, a woman, you know, started saying, hey, Kate, I don't know, like, you're on 13 meds because they were all professionals in the area. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, was a, it was a group that was advised by stakeholders, so advised by doctors, psychiatrists, and the like. And they started asking some questions. Yeah. And at that point, honestly, I, I was also in agreement. I was also in, like, a what the heck is going on? Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't making it any better. So finally, on my 16th hospitalization, and I was working at this time, so I would be working, and then I would go in, and it worked well that I was in an organization that was about supported employment because I had right. a supported employment job. They, they understood how to accommodate, um, which, again, was life-saving for a lot of reasons. But I went in, and um, I told my doctors, just, no, no more drugs. I'm done. Um, and I, they kept me in the ward on that 16th hospitalization for three weeks, which is a really long stay in a critical care unit. Um, and they kept saying, no, Kate, like, you don't need <laughs> this. You, mm. you, um, you, don't, you, you don't need to go off these meds. This is going to break you. Um, you're going to end up in a ward. You're going to end up in a ward. Um, and I said, I already live in and out of a ward. I have nothing to lose. I am the side effect of the side effect of a side effect. I haven't met myself since I was 16. You need to let me meet me. Mm. Um, and again, this is where being stubborn really paid <laughs> off. And I was a pain in the butt, <laughs> truly. Um, and they said, okay. So I started titrating. Um, and my also my therapist died, um, which sounds like a mic drop moment in here. But it ended up being my therapist of eight years died. And that ended up actually really saving my life because I went to Five other therapists who told me I would live in a ward, and then the sixth therapist, who was the final string before they literally thought I would spend my life in an institution, um, and he said, oh, my God, you don't have bipolar disorder on the third session with Dr. C. He said, no way, no way. You have an extreme anxiety disorder. You've been running from your feelings your entire life. You're just scared, and I don't say just to trivialize it because you're terrified Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't even make sense. You're so terrified that your mind creates things when combined with medication. And I can help you. If you work harder than you've ever worked in your life, I can help you. And maybe someday you'll have a partner and a part-time job, and you'll be able to keep that part-time job. You won't go to the ward every other week. Um, And I said, okay, I'll try. Um, and that's where I lear- learned exposure therapy. I learned to face my fears every single day. Um, and that's where I learned really that when we sit with our fear, when we sit in the discomfort, we grow our brains. We change the neuroplasticity. And every time we change that neuroplasticity, we build a stamina to do it again. And I, I'm not addicted to it, but I'm kind of a growth junkie at this point. Mm. I sometimes say, people say, how did you get here? And it's because I learned that when I'm uncomfortable or when I don't know something, if I lean all the way in and give myself to the quaking, the heart palpitations, the sweat, I grow. Um, and that's, that's really where I started to get my life back. Mm. Um, and he taught me how to do this work 
It started literally a block away at an apartment at East Wheelock. I used to go outside every day wearing my adult diapers. Again, a little disclaimer here. Um, It's a little gross, but I was so nervous I defecated. Scared shitless isn't a joke. It's actually a (laughs) clinical term for a reason. I lived it. (laughs) Maybe I'll title a book one day of that. But anyways, I would stand out by the dumpster, and I would sit there with my fear um, until I'd go to the bathroom. And then I would sit there and, and literally sit in my discomfort, and I would do it every single day. And I did it every single day. And finally, six weeks in, and I talk about this in my TEDx, six weeks in, um, I um, get a, a, a approached by security. And they're like, so um, we've got some complaints from the neighbors. Like, you stand out here by your dumpster every single day. And I was like, back up. I'm growing. <laughs> and they were so <laughs> confused and so overwhelmed. They just drove away. They didn't know what to do. Like, mm. And finally, at two months, I was able to leave the house without having an accident. And by three months, I no longer wore diapers. And by four months, I walked in and got a job at a startup, Farmhouse Pottery. And at five months, I was working 60 hours a week for them. And that, 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 say that again, 60 hours? Yeah. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I, I turned my life around. Um, and I did it all by being completely, wholeheartedly uncomfortable. Um, I, and owning my mess. I think the scariest thing a person can do is admit that they're part of the problem. Mm. I am part of the problem. That's so scary to say when a business is failing or a marriage is failing or a relationship or a friendship or whatever it is you're doing. Mm. Oh, it's partly me. Our our natural reaction is to be perfect and put together and have it all worked out. Um, And that's how we, quote unquote, denote success. But for me, success is showing up in the mess. It's showing up in the work. Mm. Success is the act of leaning in when it's hard. And um, that's why I'm here today. Yeah. 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 That's why I'm here today. And Waffle, your your service dog, is uh, having a nice nap here. She is, because she knows I'm relaxed right now. Yeah. So So. what's, what's her story? Right. So I started working at this startup, and you balked at 60 hours a week, which is very understandable, because everyone in my family was terrified. They, they, I probably gave them their own anxiety disorder, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, at that point, working so hard. I just realized I could grow. And yet, growing does take um, a gentleness and time. I think, Can I pause? Yeah, totally. Who gave you a job to work 60 hours a week with where you were in your life at that time? They didn't know where I was. Um, and this is actually one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that owning oneself mm-hmm. and one's health is paramount to the success of not only yourself, but of also all the businesses you work at. Um, so this business actually became the greatest lesson um, of mine, probably my entire career and possibly my entire life. Um, I walked in um, and I'm an intelligent woman. <laughs> um, I, I finally understand that. <laughs> um, and I talked glaze and art and stories, and I talked website interfaces because I was very well-spoken in that regard. And um, it was a pottery studio um, wanting to build a lifestyle brand. And um, the gentleman who ran the company, still does today, um, was really was really excited. And I was excited, and we were excited. And, um, and he just said, you know, do you want to work here? And I said, mm. you know, I can only start part-time. You know, I can only start part-time. And he said, okay, well, start part-time. And I started part-time, and I, I kicked butt. Um, I was really great, and I was so motivated to learn. Yeah. Um, I'd heard all these stories, 
when I was working in the supported employment and the academic setting about when you get to a job you love, it'll be like you're in a sandbox. You'll be a kid in a sandbox. Mm. And I kept hearing that story and thinking, this job is not a sandbox. Like, no job is a sandbox. This is crazy. No job is a sandbox. But farmhouse pottery was a sandbox. There was so much to do and so much to learn, and everything was joyful. And even on days when it was torrential downpour and all of my sandcastles were ruined, I was still learning. And I think one of the things that I've found most joyful about my entire life is that I can always say, well, I'm not an award. I'm not locked in a bedroom. Mm -hmm. I have the power to change. I have the power to use the computer. I'm not allotted only 20 minutes of internet time a day. I'm allotted the entire night. And I think that, although it's this weird thing to think about such a dark time in my life as the greatest gift, it's been the greatest gift because it gave me legs to grow. Um, And at Farmer's Pottery, I grew too fast. I worked too hard. Um, I started part-time, and then they said, we want to give you the first salaried position. And I was so honored. I was so honored to be the first salaried employee of a startup. I said yes. Um, And I was supposed to work 40 hours, and I was so motivated I worked 60. And then I got to a point where I would get to work at 9, and it was over in Woodstock, so it involved quite a drive, especially hitting literally every school district on the way, so I'd leave around (laughs) 7.15. And I would sometimes leave at 9.30 or 10, and then I would go work out at the gym, and then I'd go home. Um, And I did that six days a week. Um, And at that point, my colon and my my body started really shutting down. Um, I, it was too much stress. I was pushing myself too hard. I wasn't getting enough sleep. My mind wasn't getting enough rest. And as a result of that, I kept having these flashbacks um, to my hallucinations. And it was the stress of the job that yeah. triggered it. I think I it think. was a combination of the stress of the job and also just almost a decade of trauma catching Mm -hmm. up to me. Um, And I realized as I was sitting there selling pottery or on the phone with a wholesaler that when I saw these visual things Mm. that felt like hallucinations, I would be so nervous and hijacked with cortisol that I wasn't able to function. Um, And it it became a problem. It became a, a source of um, not only exhaustion, but of inconsistency. And I'll, I'll be the first to say it. By the t- end of my time there, I just wasn't able to operate at the same cadence mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah. kind of guaranteed performance. Um, and so finally I said, you know, I need to slow down. I have to slow down. Um, I need to. I either need to switch to do marketing and just do your social media, which I'd really fell in love with, the idea of telling stories that reach a wider group. Um, or I... Or I, I or my time's up. And they said, you know, we don't have a marketing position yet. We're not ready to have a marketing position. We're a tiny team. We need you to do all the things. Um, And in that moment, I realized they didn't get it. Um, They didn't get that when I said I couldn't do it, I really meant I couldn't do it. And I I told both of the owners um, my whole story. I remember sitting in their office and said, so, you know, I've told you I have a little bit of OCD, it's the only socially acceptable mm. mental illness in business, um, or at least when I, I thought, at least when reading yeah. books, you can be extra orderly. That's a good thing. You know, you're good yeah. at bookkeeping. Like, good. You're good. Um, you double check here. Right. That's, right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my weakness. I yeah. double check too much. Yeah, I double check too much. Right. Totally. So OCD was an okay thing to talk about. But I said, you know, that's not the whole story. The whole mm-hmm. story is bipolar disorder. Learning it was a misdiagnosis 
bipolar disorder, 21 psychiatric hospitalizations, years of suicidality. Like, that's my history, and that's my history only a year, dating back a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember both of them, they started to cry. And they said, oh, my gosh, we had no idea. Hmm. We had no idea. Um, and, of course, you need to be well. Um, but we can't have you work for us if if you're doing this. We need someone who can do all of the things you did. Sure. Um, and so I left. Um, I left and I got a part-time job doing marketing um, for this coffee company hmm. that I then went on to be sales and marketing director for. Um, and that was when we got Waffle. And at that time, although I thought, you know, I had, oh my gosh, I'd found my sandbox. Like, I'm going to play with startups the rest of my life. I also felt like I had failed. Um, I had burnt out. I had fried my, my existence, um, I, like my, my stamina. And I, I just, I was really, I was really depressed. Um, that is not a failure, of course. Not at all. Oh, gosh. It was the greatest growth experience of my life. But at the time, I just I felt like my body was failing me, that I couldn't, with mental illness, do this. I couldn't exist consistently with these flashbacks, like graphic flashbacks of my suicide attempts and graphic flashbacks of death and gore. And they're just really horrible. My flashbacks were horrible. (laughs) They were horrible on all levels. Um, And I would have them throughout the day. Um, and I just didn't know how I could marry living with these abrupt disruptions, mm-hmm. these just these body overtaking mo- these moments of just loss of what felt like loss of control um, with work. And then we got Waffle. And Waffle, at three months old, started cannonballing this puppy fluff. Bernie's <laughs> Mountain Dogs are just so fluffy when they're puppies. Not that she's not fluffy now, but she would cannonball onto my lap. And about 30 seconds later, I'd have a flashback. And I told my husband, my now husband, he was then um, my boyfriend, um, hey, honey, Waffle cues me, and she sees my flashbacks. And he was like, sure, 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 <laughs> whatever. And then it kept happening. So then I, my husband is a scientist. My parents are data nerds. I realized I needed a spreadsheet. I was like, spreadsheets are the answer. They've always been the answer <laughs> ever since we were a child. So I got her a spreadsheet, and I kept track of them. And she predicted 100% of my visual flashbacks. And she would do it with a cannonball. So you can imagine, you know, I'm sitting somewhere trying to learn about more about social media, taking online courses from home and learning to take photos for coffee, this coffee business. And Waffle would just come hurling herself, just the most disruptive way to cue ever. So then I decided I needed to lot some time, basically, to learn about service animals and what this behavior was. And it turns out, there are a lot of dogs that smell cortisol in the breath and pheromone changes, hmm. and that if they spend a lot of time with you, um, they could just pick it up naturally. Although most service animals are very, very well trained um, and trained in, you know, insane organization based on curricula that are that are well built. Um, Waffle had picked it up just by proxy of hanging out with me 24 hours a day, hmm. and I basically downloaded a few PDFs and jerry-rigged a training program, and being the person I am who just kind of goes for it, I drove to our local farm stand and bought 10 pounds of bacon. (laughs) That would have made made any happy. Right? Exactly. (laughs) And so I started teaching her to jump on my leg before I would or give me a paw, depending on the type of behavior, Um, basically 
dependent on the type of flashback. Mm -hmm. And so what she gave me um, was not just certainty, but she gave me a way to stay calm, to stay present, and to be in public and not be overtaken with terror and kind of descend into a panic attack. So when she would put her paw on you, for example, would you still have a flashback? I would absolutely still have a flashback, but I would know it was coming. So you could deal with it better. Totally. So instead of being on a phone call or like at the pottery business, you know, I'm interfacing with someone who's buying $500 worth of pottery. I've charmed them. I've made them very happy. Mm -hmm. They're very excited. I'm checking them out. And then I see something and my body locks up Mm -hmm. and my heart, you know, races and I start stripping in sweat. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really close a deal. Like, you don't, you know, you're not like, okay, I really trust this woman. (laughs) that's right. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, like, um, whereas when I knew, I was like, oh, I'm going to see something awful. Oh, okay, I'm going to see something awful. And so you can almost, is it true, compartmentalize it in a sense and say, okay, it's exactly. there. Exactly. I can't, I can't eliminate it. It's there, but it's not going to control me. Exactly. And it's not a hallucination. It's a flashback. So the difference is in a hallucination that I used to experience mm-hmm. didn't have the same reactivity. But I wasn't able to differentiate back then that... Just because I was seeing something, did it looked the same to me. These these things, they look mm-hmm. real. And so every time I experienced one, what my brain would tell me mm-hmm. was, oh, my gosh, I've gone back in time and I'm psychotic again. It's the worst thing ever. It just yeah. throws you back into mm-hmm. this, like, disability, isolation, suicidality. It's just a horrible memory to be mm-hmm. brought to the forefront. Whereas when I'm cute about it, oh, that's just a memory. I can deal with a memory. Yeah. As long as I'm not there, I can deal with a memory. And so from there, I, I trained her. Um, again, I trained her very unconventionally. Um, <laughs> the, the bacon technique. Yeah, the bacon technique. Pioneered the bacon technique. She now smells bacon and just starts drooling. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, she's she's my most unconventional service dog. So um, because of her, I then was able to scale up in work and do so gently, <laughs> going yes. from, you know, 20 hours to 40 hours. Yeah. Um, um, actually, it was really more like 20 to 30 and 30 to 40. Um, and then and then all the while, I started keeping track of our journey on social media and using her platform, Waffle Nugget, to learn about the intricacies of social media, how to manage it, how mm-hmm. to create data and analytics that didn't exist yet. Um, this was before Sprout Social and Hootsuite and such, kind of to manage it. I was just interested in how you can capitalize on getting the most audience Um, whether it's posting time or hashtags or content types. I started categorizing and such. Um, So I used her platform as an opportunity to learn social media marketing, and I used that information to grow King's Row Coffee's um, social media, and then I was bumped up to sales and marketing director. Um, And from there, I really just started to more and more, at a much more thoughtful cadence, Mm -hmm. throw myself into online courses, um, again, I think this is where remembering that we as humans possess the freedom to learn. Right. And I had been restricted from that. When I lived in a ward um, or I was super medicated, I didn't have that incredible opportunity to Google something. I literally got the computer for 20 minutes a day. Yeah. Um, it so. sounds like the, the image of someone who, who, who is blind and can now see. And totally. everything, is, uh, everything is bright. Everything is bright. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so then it took me um, to kind of run that company, um, started doing some talking stuff with Waffle and our journey, um, 
started my own company consulting. Um, and then during that time, I went to New York and gave this talk. And Elias said, hey, this woman actually has an interesting story. And that's how you connected with the doggist. Exactly. And we go full circle. Yeah, exactly. Wow. What, what, a, what a story. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and the story continues. It does. Um, it does. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, um, so important to, to share. And you share it in such a compelling, powerful uh, manner, which I think is, uh, um, is going to relate to a lot of people. Um, uh, you've shared a lot of, a lot of advice, uh, a lot of ideas <laughs> yeah, yeah. as part of your story. Yeah. So in wrapping up, uh, I'll ask you the question, even though you're closer in age to what I often ask, which is uh, imagine your 21-year-old self. And you know, as you right. described, when you were 21, was, your life was quite different. Yeah. Um, but it was part of the journey. If you could kind of cozy up next to your 21-year-old self, what would uh, what bit of advice might you give uh, might you give her knowing what you know now about the world and about yourself? Yeah, um, fear is an opportunity. Mm. Um, when we're scared, it's an opportunity to grow through it. It's not something to run from. I think for a really long time I thought fear was weakness, um, but fear is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when you feel it, don't be ashamed to ask for help and and figure out how to work through it, but no matter what, work through it, not run away from it. Yeah, yeah, wow. Thank you, Kate. Yeah. Really enjoyed the conversation, and thank you again for sharing your story. Kate Spear. Thank you so much. <laughs>